Welcome back to the Orange Mailbox. We have Dr. Marty Pruce with us again this evening. Uh, this is a follow-up interview from our first coronavirus pandemic interview we had with him. And uh, we invited him to join us again to give us an update on what's going on in not just our county, but the state of Indiana and the nation as a whole. So, Dr. Pruce, thanks again for being with us. Oh, really happy to get the chance. Yes, awesome. So let, let me just throw a few figures out to you, and then we'll just let you take it from there. So since our last conversation, we're up around 214,000-plus cases in the United right. States. Indiana, we have roughly 2,600 cases, 2,565, I believe. Deaths nationwide are 4,800. Uh, Indiana has 65 deaths. And we have nine cases in our county. Now, of those 65 deaths in Indiana, I did a little math, and approximately 88% of that death rate are for people that are 60 and above. So we were just concerned with whether or not the hospital has seen an increased caseload, and if so, how are the medical staff dealing with that increased caseload? Well, you know, I think the hospital definitely is seeing uh, more admissions uh, for coronavirus-type illness, um, but they're not anywhere near at capacity right now. So I think think the the, the hospital itself is uh, investing itself probably more right now in the preparations uh, for what we perceive the surge uh, will be. Uh, right now, the workload of the actual patient care, though it's up, it is not overwhelming at this juncture. Okay. Is the hospital prepared or getting prepared to have the ability to set up mobile triage centers if needed? Well, you know, I think they've done a lot of extensive work and, and really the, uh, the county's emergency management uh, agency has is, is done a fantastic job of having uh, these strategies out there. Uh, the hospital has expanded its capacity for coronavirus appropriate beds, uh, and we have a lot of regional agreements with other hospitals and stuff to support them or to get support from them, depending on how the caseloads uh, set up. So as of right now, I am not aware of any plan for you means uh, things such as mobile testing sites or okay. Uh, I'm not aware of any plans uh, right now for that. That's not to say there aren't any, but uh, nothing in, in the works that I'm aware of. Okay, and we're hearing a lot of shortage stories. How is the supply affecting our healthcare facilities in this county? Well, I think the shortage stories right now are more probably in Indianapolis. Uh, now, that said, we're trying to... Uh, a little bit crystal ball, but an educated crystal ball, figuring out what our supplies will need to be. And that is something that uh, the logistics folks at the hospital are just doing a fabulous job of identifying resources and getting them here uh, so that, that we're set up. Uh, it, to a degree, we have an advantage here in Grant County in that the wave is a little further away from us than it is to your, your more dense urban centers. And so we have a chance to learn from from what they're going through, and we also have simply the factor of time uh, to identify resources to to bring them in and have them prepared and ready and standby. So, right now, I would say Marion uh, General Hospital doesn't have any shortages and has really pretty good game plans in place to make sure that we don't run into shortages. That said, conservation is still the name of the game right now. I just want to piggyback on kind of what you said about the larger cities. The U.S. Surgeon General 
said that Indianapolis is a potential hot spot now, and we're seeing that in their rise of cases in in Marion County. I believe they're around really nine, dramatic nine hundred yeah. or more. I, I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, one thousand one hundred and seventeen right yes. now. Well, that was as of ten today. So to go back to some of the statistics that I was reading off. 88% of the death rate that we're seeing from the cases just in Indiana are people age 60 and above. Now, is that just because they mostly have underlying conditions or? Well, it's absolutely, it's not so much just that. Uh, simply being over 65 uh, in and of itself, uh, even without the underlying conditions, is a fairly significant risk factor. Uh we see that anybody with cardiovascular, um, pulmonary, advanced kidney or advanced liver troubles really is at high risk for developing this ARDS or uh, adult respiratory distress syndrome, Yeah, uh, which is, is the big problem uh, with this. Many people that will get this uh, will simply have cold symptoms for the most part. And I would say the vast majority of people, 80, 90% of infections are not going to see a serious illness out of yeah. this. But if you have some of these underlying conditions to include advanced age, uh, you are at much higher risk for these complications to develop. And the complications, once they develop, are very hard to rein in. Yeah. Now, when we last interviewed you, we talked about being two weeks behind the curve, and we're seeing that now. Um, mm -hmm. There's, what, 25,000 new cases in the United States just today. Mm -hmm. And yes. New York, I think New York City's the the bulk of that. They're about thirty five percent of that. But yeah. the social distancing, I think it's working in your smaller cities and towns. But places like New York City, I've watched numerous videos of people, especially like in Oakland, California, hundreds of people out in the street hanging out, doing whatever. It's just, mm -hmm. I guess they don't understand that the social distancing works. Well, and and to be honest, the social distancing is is absolutely critical, but but it has to be uniform. Social distancing, if only thirty percent of your population is committed to a social distancing distancing strategy, you just don't slow the virus down. Um, in the in the countries where we've seen dramatic bends in the curve, like South Korea, uh, right. the the measures that have been taken there to ensure the public is is compliant have really really been way beyond what we've done here. Yeah. Um, you know, to the extent that you can trust any of the data from China, uh, we know that in Wuhan, they essentially put, you know, 7 million people under house arrest, mm -hmm. um, which we, of course, have not done anything like that. But that is what it took, uh, at least in theory, to slow that virus down there. There's even some question how much of an impact that made, but we just can't tell from the data we're provided. Well, the the data they've provided hasn't really been accurate. So, I think uh, probably the picture you're seeing in Italy and Spain is more consistent with what we'll see here. But the problem is, I would say that even Italy took much more drastic measures than we're taking here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Italy, early on in the outbreak, they permitted only grocery stores and pharmacies to remain open, and everything else closed. Uh, and yet, you can see the the mess that they're contending with, with almost a 10% mortality rate right now. Well, with, with the extreme measures that these other countries have taken in Indiana, in your opinion, do you foresee the Indiana Department of Homeland Security expanding the county travel status to the red warning level, or 
could there even be a complete shutdown of everything and everybody's confined to their homes? I think that would be a drastic step, but I think that if more of the counties uh, in our state start to look like Marion County, mm-hmm. uh, then I think that much more aggressive steps are going to have to be taken. I really see most of it as being left to the local leadership right now, but I think a more uh, centralized approach might be necessary. Now, that said, there are still counties in Indiana that have not recorded their first case. So it's hard to say that what we should be doing in Marion County right now is the same as what we would be doing in one of our primarily agrarian counties where we have one or no cases. Now, the the president extended the quarantine to yeah, the stay-at-home orders, if you can. Yes, yeah. he extended the stay-at-home orders through April. And do you think that Governor Holcomb will do the same in Indiana? I would think he will. Uh, that would be would be my impression. I know that there was supposed to be uh, some policy statements regarding the schools either today or tomorrow. Okay. Uh, and that we were going to, to be hearing some more guidance uh, from him. Um, and again, I think he's really right now got a a pandemic primarily uh, in Marion County and the counties immediately bordering on that. And I think the focus of the management really right there now is is what his focus is. But as this wave grows and and more and more counties, the the logic for making it a local decision starts to erode and we'll need a better statewide strategy. Mm -hmm. The trick is, is doing that quickly enough to make a difference. I think it's okay to leave grocery stores open. We we have to have something to eat, of course. But what we're seeing, I think we can do better in that people think because the grocery store is open that it can be a family event and everybody can go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you got kids running in the aisles, and it just it's a free-for-all in some of these places. I saw a picture from where I'm from down near Kentucky in London. It wasn't in London, but it was near London. And the parking lot was just packed and just like it's just like a petri dish of to breed this stuff well you know you're absolutely right and i think somehow we we hopefully uh, will find a way to encourage people to understand that yes going to the grocery store is an essential activity to to support your family we understand that but it really needs to be a strategic thing where you plan one trip to the grocery store perhaps a week and only one member of the family goes yeah uh, because everybody that steps out into a public setting is is taking on a measure of risk yes. to bring this disease back to their friends and family. Yes. Uh, it's a very real consideration. It, it really should not be taken lightly. Uh, making five trips to the grocery store in a week to pick up things you've realized that you need is counterproductive and is hazardous to you and your neighbors. And, and taking the whole family just for a chance to get out of the house, yeah. although appealing, is really a hazardous gamble because every single person in that store now has multiplied your risk of picking this disease up in your home. I noticed today I saw something where Hawaii, I don't know what island it was, uh, but they had started enforcing the, they had the, I don't know, the trail-like things or whatever to get into the building. I don't know what you call them things like at the airport. Mm-hmm. And uh, they was only letting a certain amount of people come in. You get what you need, and you get out of there. They wasn't letting groups of people come in there. And right. I just I one one person per family, and yes. no more than fifty in the store at once. Yes, and I just wonder, could that technically be enforced? Well, I imagine it could, but really, I think any of these things, if we have to rely upon enforcement, we're going to fail. Yeah, we've got to get to the point where the citizenry wants to do the right thing as long as we continue with this mindset of 
what can I get away with or, or what's the bare minimum that's required to comply, we're going to be behind the eight ball. Yes. Until people really are making their best effort and, and a thoughtful effort to, to, to secure themselves at home and keep their families safe, we're just going to see this continue to snowball. I think people expect the government to just fix it and go on about their life or everyday business where the government's just going to give us the tools and we have to take those tools and do what they say. And especially, uh, is it Dr. Fauci? Mm -hmm. See the one that speaks, um, the daily briefings. Yes. Yes. And then the lady doctors, they're, they're both pretty intelligent people. So, uh, I listen to what they say and, and try to put it in practice every day. You know, and you make a good point. Those folks are, are really well informed. I think that the information that they provide really is based on science. And literally, as the science changes, as we learn new things in the literature each and every day, that is almost immediately incorporated into their recommendations. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would caution people is the innumerable uh, social media posts with people that have the solution. Uh, a lot of what's recommended in those venues really is is useless, if not hazardous. And so I would tell people, look, these, these other folks are readily available. Their information that they're putting out on the CDC and the Indiana State Department of Health, this is really good scientific information. If you want to know what the right thing to do, that's the right thing. There really aren't magical shortcuts yep. uh, that are going to get you through. I've read a few stories where this virus uh, has potentially or could potentially be airborne what have you heard as far as it being airborne well it can be airborne but only really in certain specific settings so far as we understand now keep in mind everything i say is based upon three months of science right and so this is not a well investigated thing but from what we can tell it's just certain procedures primarily in medical settings where this can be aerosolized now people that have nebulizer machines at home using a nebulizer machine might aerosolize the virus. So in those cases, an aerosol can be made, and that suspends the virus for a much longer time in the air. But for the majority of transmission, it's because you either got coughed or sneezed on, or you've walked or touched somewhere that somebody has coughed or sneezed. Right. That is, is really the vast majority of transmission in this virus. So do you think that um, before we go to a red alert status, is it possible that more businesses would be forced to close uh, before we get to that next well, level? Is what the political will to do those things is, I'm not sure. I think it would certainly be helpful. I would say whenever you order only essential businesses to remain open and you find that 80% of your businesses or whatever it is are still open, it, it, it begs the question, the definition of essential. Uh, so I think we need to be uh, maybe more essential businesses only remain open. Uh, not that I want to stress our small business owners, but a lot of the businesses that are currently declared essential, I would argue that it might be beneficial to the public health not to have them open right now. Which takes us right back to, are we going to abide by what our government's telling us we need to do? Well, and I think for a business owner, it also comes down to, you know, I realize that I, I could make an argument for me to be an essential business, but right. maybe maybe this is a good time for my community to close down anyhow, even without the thumbscrews put to me. And I, I know that's a tremendously difficult decision when it comes to the bottom line and, and maybe even the viability of your of your company. But we certainly need to see people stepping up and saying, regardless of what's required of me, 
I'm going to do the right thing here. Well, Whether you... I be a church or a, a, a retail store or a manufacturing entity, uh, drawing people together in crowds, if that's what happens at your place of operation, there is risk there and you need to decide if the risk is going to be worth the continued business. We need to get to the point where human life is more important than topping off your gas tank or, well, and it's a little bit the conviction of it too. Right now, when you might not know anybody personally that has coronavirus or you haven't lost a family member or a friend to coronavirus, it becomes a little distant and a little harder to convince yourself to comply. The sad thing is, is by the time we have things happening like that, that convince us the opportunity to make a difference will pass. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's one of these situations where you simply have to take it on faith uh, and believe what's being told to you, that you have to do things now for the benefit that will be two to three to four weeks down the road for us. Now, there's a lot of, uh, we're going to try to cover a few myths, I guess you would call them, a lot of uh, videos floating around out there, people sharing all these wild stories about Carl drinking water four times a day and making this stuff go away and you hold your right leg up in the air every day for eight hours a day, it's going to go all this kind of weird stuff coming through the pipe. And yeah. uh, we're going to try to cover some of those just to try to clear some things up. First of all, though, I did hear a report from a medical doctor, respiratory doctor, friend of mine that she is seeing and has noticed that some doctors are stating that the tests could have been performed incorrectly, thus giving a false negative to these people. Are you hearing that? Oh, that is absolutely the case. So when these tests are performed, uh, at least currently for the swab we have to do, the swab is inserted through the nostril and it has to go all the way to the back of your throat. Uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a not a comfortable swab, and it is not something we routinely do in any clinical setting. Uh, but to get an adequate specimen, you have to do that. That's thing one. Thing two, the earlier you are in your disease process, the less likely you will return a positive result, even if you have the virus. People later in the disease process have a much higher viral load, and it's much easier to detect. So those two factors uh, are real important. This is why screening people who are asymptomatic might border on useless right now because getting a negative test is not reliable. And then the question arises, and what are you going to be tomorrow? Yes. So, yeah, the test right now, best performance of the test is probably if it tells you, if you let's put it this way, if you have coronavirus, the test will tell you that you do have it about 70 to 75% of the time. Okay. So 25% of actual cases that are swabbed will likely not be detected by the test. Hmm. This doctor stated, she said that if you are not uncomfortable during that test, it wasn't performed right. <laughs> yes, it's, 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 um, it's not unbearable. I don't mean to scare people with it, but it's not, it's not like blowing your nose. Okay. It, is, it, is, it is a challenging uh, feeling. Okay. Well, a lot like you said, they could, even if they do the test right, but they do it too early, then this person thinks, oh, I'm good. I don't have it. And then they go down the road a week later absolutely. and they got a full blown case of it. That's absolutely correct. And again, remember that if we test you, all we can do is, is tell you our best estimate of what you are right at this moment. You could on the way home, stopping at the gas station, pick up your infection. And so it doesn't help you to know what you are 12 or 24 hours later. It just tells you right at this moment, mm-hmm. which is why it's really only useful in the management 
of inpatients uh, or, or people living in uh, crowded settings like uh, long-term care facilities, prisons, military barracks, places like that. Okay. Another myth I'm hearing, truth or false, I don't know. What about the warning to stop taking ibuprofen? Well, there are what we call anecdotal instances where that appears to be a problem, but having anything at a scientific level right now uh, is not there. I, I could not point to science and say that we convincingly have data that you shouldn't take an anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen. That said, keep in mind, as I said earlier, we've got three months of science, and it might absolutely be true that these one-off case reports in fact, are on to something. So I would say if you don't have a pressing need to take ibuprofen, uh, go with Tylenol or something else uh, until we have better data, better science. But no, right now, there isn't science that I could point to that would warn people off of that medicine. I've also heard that if you have a fever, as long as you can handle it and it doesn't go above 103, keep the fever because they're saying the heat... uh, the virus doesn't like that. Well, biologically, the the reason uh, that the body generates fever as part of the inflammatory response is that most virus and bacteria are, are keenly adapted for 98.6, and they don't like 102 and 103. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, as you start getting to 104, 105, we worry about some complications of the high fever or even the dehydration factor. But right. for the most part, you know, a lower-grade fever isn't really a bad thing. You do feel miserable. So treating a fever makes you feel a lot better, but uh, the fever is, you know, serving a purpose. The designer put it there for a reason. <laughs> okay, speaking of heat, so we're hearing about the keeping the high temp, if you can, at that certain level. I've heard doing saunas. I've heard warm liquids to decrease mucus buildup. I even read something the other day where this person had taken a hairdryer and was breathing the heat off the hair dryer <laughs> so many times a day, stating this is a way to keep this from coming back or killing it if you think you have it. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I've seen anything <laughs> scientific that supports that. Now, the theory here, of course, is that any virus or bacteria, if you heat them up, they don't do well. They, they don't multiply as well, and you get them warm enough and they'll die off. The argument, though, Blowing hot air or steamy air into your nose doesn't really raise tissue temperatures that much, and the virus is already in the tissues replicating, so it may not have any impact on the tissues, even though you've got a nice, warm, toasty air flowing through your nasal passages. Uh, so I would be hard-pressed to support that as a, as, a, as a treatment or prevention strategy. Even saunas? Even saunas, although they feel good. They relax you, and people need a little bit of uh, anxiety relief and relaxation, so might not be a bad idea in that framework, but I don't think you're doing anything against the coronavirus with it. Okay. Another thing I've heard is that if we can create an alkaline environment in our body with lemon juice, eating lemons, it'll decrease our chances with this virus. I would probably offend a lot of naturopathic and homeopathic uh, folks out there, but generally small shifts in the body's pH we call shock. Uh, and we generally work very hard in intensive care units to try to fix little switches in the pH. So this whole concept that you can significantly move the body's pH with your diet, number one, is false. And number two, the whole concept that you would survive significant swings in your body's pH is false. So this <laughs> is a, not just in coronavirus, but in all the many ailments that are argued to be uh, treated with these pH adjustments. 
it, it really isn't scientifically supported. And again, here again, I'm sure in an acidic environment, the virus would not survive, but neither would you. One more myth. Does this virus have the capability to stay on your shoes for five days? I would have to say probably. The data does show that, that on a lot of plastic uh, metal surfaces and more and more data on a number of surfaces that are these harder, non-porous surfaces that we're seeing three and four day stay times. Uh, so that is certainly something of consequence and of concern. Shoes specifically, I've not seen data on how long it's there, but I will say that when I come home from work at the end of the day, the shoes I wear through clinics stay out in the garage and don't come into the house <laughs> just because it's a simple measure to take until we do know. Yes. Um, what's the status of the availability of tests and how long has it taken to get the results from those tests? Well, I will tell you that has certainly made some real progress here recently. Uh, as more and more um, reference labs have come online with tests available, uh, we've seen some increase and even the state has dramatically improved on its availability and turnaround times. Early on, some of the reference labs were taking up to 10 days to turn around a result, which really isn't particularly useful for most cases. Um, now we're seeing turnarounds in a day to two days. Oh, wow. uh, and the uh, state just today uh, expanded uh, the, the, the types of swabs it could now take. Previously, they were really just focused primarily on hospitalized patients and and symptomatic healthcare workers, but they've expanded the class to a lot of other symptomatic peoples that can be tested just as of today. So I think that we're gonna see that the testing limitation is, is definitely loosened up. Let's put it this way, the clinically important testing that we need to do is available for us to do. Testing everybody that's interested is not available yet, nor is it really useful yet. Is there a test available that uh, will give us faster results? There is, and uh, that I'm aware of, it is not available at any site in Indiana right now, but mm -hmm. there will be probably within the next few weeks uh, a tabletop test that we probably can do in under 45 minutes. Do you feel that we are flattening this curve? Not that I'm seeing. Not that I'm seeing in the data that's coming out. Uh, but again, it's the kind of thing that statistically you can almost only tell after the fact. Uh, you have to know where the peak is, uh, and we don't really know where the peak is. Statistical models uh, for, for Indiana uh, look like the peak would be projected to be about two to three weeks probably from now. But again, I, I would caution everybody that this is all a little bit of a crystal ball. We're using the best information that we have, but we don't have any great information, yeah. uh, not like flu where we have a few decades worth of data to project and, and have good imagery. We've, we've really got a few months of data and oftentimes from countries where we don't know how good the data is. But our best guess right now is that Indiana is still about three weeks away from the peak of its cases. Um, are we any closer to a vaccine? Well, I'm sure that we are. Uh, the process takes a little while. And I think that the, the issue here is the vaccine is going to be more useful as we look at this, whether coronavirus will be a seasonal problem or a relapse problem. But for this initial wave, it's going to be hard to see how a vaccine is going to be helpful to us. Okay. 
I've just noticed how Detroit just popped up out of nowhere. And I know he's watching New York and a little bit of Chicago, Atlanta area even, but then all of a sudden, boom, here comes Detroit. What happened there, do you think? Uh, you know, it really, uh, the, the few things can can happen that, that dramatically impact this. Population density is is critically important. You know, the virus likes it when the next host is just a couple feet away. Uh, so that's always a good thing. But we do see these super spreader events. Uh, for instance, instance, I'm sorry, in India, uh, of all places, they had one of their uh, religious leaders visit, I believe it was Italy, to try to support uh, people spiritually with this uh, corona outbreak mm-hmm. uh, there. And then when returning, declined to go into quarantine or isolation and traveled throughout the country on a pilgrimage. And about three weeks later, he died of the virus. And literally, they've got thousands of cases linked to this one individual. Oh, wow. So if you have events where a, a super spreader, somebody that's shedding lots and lots of virus is coming in close contact with people, that can be an event that really dramatically bumps up the issues quickly uh, because you're basically just seeding the field. Uh, so if people are doing good social isolation, even if they're bad viral shedders, they might come in contact with five or 10 people. Whereas if they're public figures or they're out in the community a lot, uh, you know, it can be hundreds, if not thousands of people they might come in contact with if they're not taking this distancing and hand washing and social isolation seriously. It's safe to say it's an accurate statement that these cities that are just popping up out of nowhere um, and showing huge increases of infection. And that's a direct result of the increased testing, right? Well, that certainly can be a factor. Yes. Whenever you see a, a big jump up and, and certainly the, the, the fact that our testing turnaround has gone from eight or nine days to two days, you're seeing now with the ability to turn it around faster, you're seeing what looks like more cases, you know, a week ago, the data we were looking at was what, coronavirus was doing five days before that or eight mm-hmm. days before that it wasn't real-time data now we're seeing more real-time data and as that speeds up as that test becomes quicker you're going to see kind of what looks like a false acceleration but really you're just catching up to what things what's going on today now are those those tests the turnaround time is faster are they doing more tests like in the hospital or is it taking longer for like independent labs to take these samples and return the results? Where are we seeing? Well, I think the state is actually turning the results around a lot faster. They're doing an excellent job at the state level okay. uh, to do that. The The private sector varies quite a bit, depending on the laboratory you go to. But mm-hmm. simply as we have more sites that have brought on their capacity to test, it distributes the caseload over more and more sites so we can get things done faster and turned around quicker. Okay. We're hearing a lot of talk about ventilators. Now, I know they're working on new ventilators and somebody's designed a new one that's smaller and quicker to reproduce and what have you. Are a lot of these ventilators, are they both invasive and non-invasive ventilators? Well, there are ways to non-invasively, quote-unquote, ventilate people, but those actually seem to be maybe problematic in coronavirus infections, uh, at least so far as we can tell. Uh, True intubation and ventilation really is is the appropriate way to go, it appears. Okay. Uh, a lot of times we'll see people treated with therapies known as BiPAP and CPAP when they're mm-hmm. having trouble breathing. IPPB? 
yeah, it sometimes saves us from having to innovate. But in truth, we're seeing that folks treated that way, number one, might spread the virus more readily. And number two, don't necessarily do as well. They're probably benefited by an earlier intubation. Is it? So, a, it go ahead. I was just going to say, so it does reduce our capacity with a lot of respiratory illnesses. We have our ventilators plus our BiPAP machines plus our CPAP machines and a variety of different oxygen masks. And in truth, uh, with, with coronavirus, you can use a nasal cannula oxygen on high flow oxygen. And when that's failing, there are a lot of uh, pulmonary and critical care specialists who are telling us you need to go right to innovation at that point. So a lot of those bridging devices that buy us time and expand what we have to offer for patients struggling to breathe really aren't as viable for coronavirus patients. So this does require increased oxygen. It's not like COPD. Exactly. You know, COPD is more, it sounds a little strange, but the whole thing comes down to being able to absorb oxygen and expel CO2, carbon yes. dioxide. Yes. And in COPD, like we think of with emphysema, largely that's an, a problem with air movement, not being able to move enough air in or out of the lungs or empty the lungs adequately to get fresh air into them. And it also is a reduction in surface area to make those gases exchange. In coronavirus, the problem is, is the structures are all there, but they're flooding with fluid. They're going underwater. And once they're underwater, you really cannot get the gases to exchange. Uh-huh. So that's a big part of our challenge. Are you seeing like a big mucus buildup like on the... Well, the fluids, yeah, the, under the inflammatory response to the virus in the lungs, for the people that develop this ARDS, uh, it basically is a flooding of, of the little little kind of what we call alveoli, which are the very small bubbles where Uh we do the gas exchange. Normally those are inflated with air and they're easily inflated with air and CO2 is readily expelled and oxygen is readily absorbed. But these are flooding with fluids, just like um, if you were to burn your finger as the blister fills with fluid. The lungs are doing the same thing in response to this virus. And it's that flooding of those airways uh, that makes everything a challenge. I'm sorry, not airways, but the alveoli. Chest congestion is not so much, and you'll hear that it's usually a dry cough. There's not a lot of sputum and mucus production with coronavirus, but down in the lungs, the lungs go from essentially a a damp sponge to a soggy sponge, and that's the problem. Are these new ventilators showing promise? The ventilators that that they're adapting certainly are able to manage. So we're seeing uh, both ventilators adapted to manage more than one patient at a time, and anesthesia machines that have been adapted, and then many of the BiPAP and CPAP machines that we may not be using for BiPAP and CPAP can also be adapted to a form of ventilation that may be helpful in coronavirus patients. So there's been some great work across the country, and particularly here in Indiana, with people figuring out ways to expand that ventilator capacity, even with the ventilators that we currently have. So that's been some fantastic success. And again, one of the beauties of not being in New York City right now is that we have the time to make these modifications and adjustments and planning. Yes. And, and really, the, the again, I will say the emergency management folks in, in Grant County, in my experience, have done a phenomenal job of, of chasing these things down and making them happen. I would agree. What about drug treatments? I've heard a lot about the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin combination. I've mm-hmm. heard of uh, Kevzera, Remdesivir, and just statin drugs in general what are you what are you hearing or seeing 
Well, I would tell you there's definitely stuff there that has got to be looked at. Again, I would caution everybody that none of this has great science behind it. Mm -hmm. It's just the experience of people in bad situations saying, I threw this at it and it seemed to help. And that's valuable. That's not to say not a good thing, but it isn't science like we have for every other drug that you'll find at your farms. Right. So meds like chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine uh, are antimalarials, and hydroxychloroquine also gets used for a number of arthritic-type uh, conditions. And so we know a lot about the drug in its side effect profile, potential toxic effects, uh, and dosing ranges. So that's useful. Uh, but what we don't know is how to treat a virus with it. And we don't know if it's entirely effective, although, like I said, some of the studies out there certainly are promising. I would say right now for things like remdesivir and uh, hydroxychloroquine, which is probably a better choice than chloroquine, uh, for those meds, if you are in the fight of your life and we've thrown in everything that we can think to do, mm -hmm. that is absolutely an appropriate time to throw you something else that might be a lifeline. So I think it absolutely, for those very sick hospitalized patients, there's probably a role to try to help them get through with the crisis. But for the vast majority of us, the actual toxicity, potential toxicity of the medicines is probably more hazardous than the coronavirus. For the vast majority of us, like I said, this is going to be a cold. And, and to treat them with a drug, not knowing the safety profile, when you might have nothing more than a cold, is a bit extreme. I would never have thought they're going to throw out hydroxychloroquine, a malaria drug and a Z-pack to treat this virus. I would never have thought of that in a million years. And I'll tell you where the Z-pack probably makes even more sense. It, it probably does have some antiviral properties, which is helpful. But the risk for a bacterial pneumonia in these already weakened patients, yeah. particularly one, uh, there is a whole group of illnesses that we call kind of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. And when you're on a ventilator, you're actually at risk for a variety of pneumonias that you wouldn't normally get roaming around out in the community right. and having somebody on azithromycin makes good sense to protect them. But again, it makes sense for the sickest of people, somebody with sniffles or a sore throat, uh, who's going to be quarantining at home. This is not a patient that needs to be taking these medicines. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing the ones that they're treating that they're experimenting with? Are they seeing a good result with this? I have heard, again, anecdotally from some providers in New York, uh, that they are seeing uh, what they think is a good response. New York City actually has real legitimate case control studies going on right now. So hopefully here in the very near future, because this disease has a fairly short course from onset to potential lethality. So we'll know from these studies within just a few weeks if we're making a statistically meaningful difference. So although the question is still out there, I think the question is going to get answered, uh, at least with some real science here shortly. It's amazing to watch everybody come together and put their minds together and attack this thing, watching mm -hmm. these updates in the evenings. And it's just amazing to watch people work together and go at this thing. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, the other thing I think that motivates people is um, – everybody's got skin in the game. Yes. Uh, so there, there, there is that, and that certainly helps. And I find that particularly here in our country, people are dramatically motivated uh, to fight something that looks unbeatable. Uh, there's a, a certain, a certain pride in taking on something that people say you can't do and showing 
that we can do it. Like the Rocky so I mentality. Think, yeah, I love yeah. that attitude. And that really is at play here. These folks that are standing up each morning and going back into the emergency room in New York City and even down in Indianapolis, that is part of that spirit. It, it's an attitude that I don't care how big this gets. I'm going to fight it until I beat it. And, mm-hmm. and that makes a huge difference. Now, we need that attitude to spill over to all the rest of us that aren't yet Absolutely. in the fight. And that attitude where we can say, listen, if I really... If I sit on my couch, if I forego going to the hardware store and getting stuff for this home improvement project that I can do now that I'm out of work, if I forego making a fifth trip to the grocery store, if I decide I'm going to watch church on TV today, those things seem like small efforts uh, and how important could they be, but they're tremendously important to the battle that's coming. So if we can get everybody to have that, I'm going to do my bit, just kind of like the World War II. I'm going to collect spare tires and tin cans, and um, I'm going to save uh, my tin foil and turn it into the war effort. That's the kind of mentality we have to get to in our communities, where everybody is doing everything they can think to do to be prepared and to prevent. Well, speaking of staying at home and not going out, what what's the actual quarantine time for this virus? Right now, what we're using is 14 days from the onset of well, we see, to be honest with you, is most of the studies that have looked at viability don't recover viable virus probably past eight to 10 days. Although we see lots of these reports of people still having detective, I'm sorry, detectable coronavirus for three weeks, four weeks. This is true, but most of our tests can't tell whether we're detecting live or dead coronavirus. So All we can tell you is it's coronavirus. So if, if you know someone that's been in contact with or comes down with the coronavirus, they should self-quarantine for 14 days? Yes. Okay. Yes. Assuming then, they don't require hospitalization. Correct. I would suggest that people do the five. People don't know what the five is. You stay home as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Keep a safe distance from people. Wash your hands often. Cover your cough. And if you're sick... Don't just go to the doctor. You need to call ahead. They can they can give you a diagnosis over the phone. Mm-hmm. How's that work? Well, I will tell you, I think phone calling your doctor is going to be very, very appreciated because you would be amazed how much we can do on the phone. Most doctor's offices are setting up telemedicine capacity, so we'll be able to do visits through the computer or your smartphone uh, for a lot of things. And at the very end of the day, there are still patients where I say, listen, I'm concerned about what's going on. I need you to come in and see me. But then we can prepare. We can leave you in the in the parking lot in your car and call you into the building when we're ready for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can do a lot of smart things that reduce your risk and reduce the healthcare workers' risks. So I think, yeah, call ahead for sure. And if you have a medical visit that you just know is is kind of a maintenance visit, it doesn't have to happen. Those are visits to, if your doctor hasn't called you, maybe call your doctor and ask how critical it is to come in for that. Uh, because again, healthcare facilities, you only want to be there right now if you got to be there right now. Right. So I would say to your list of five, the other thing that I would not be surprised come down the pike here in the next few days may be a recommendation for everybody to mask in public settings. Uh, this was done in China, was done in South Korea, mm-hmm. and the data is coming back suggesting that that can, in addition to all the things you mentioned about hand hygiene, distancing, covering your cough, wearing that mask in public, probably more important in preventing you from spreading what you don't know you yet have uh, 
but but also can protect you from others uh, to a degree. So a lot of these things you'll see online where people are sewing together masks and manufacturing them at home, those masks are perfectly appropriate for that kind of protection to contain droplets so they're not being spread. Yes. You don't need a medical-grade surgical mask for right. that. So I think for folks who have access to those, I would encourage them, even if we don't have a recommendation yet, I can guarantee if you cough or sneeze into a mask, nobody knows but you. Yeah. Uh, and that's a good thing. That keeps all the germs that are there all the time contained, and that will help reduce the spread and the contamination of common surfaces. Uh, even when we have people home quarantine, we're recommending to them that in the house, if they have access to a mask, they should wear a mask and so should their family uh, to limit exposure to one another. So these masks, uh, we've been careful about that because of the nationwide shortage of masks. We didn't want everyone running out and buying all the masks that healthcare workers would need. But as some of these other masks become available, I would encourage people, uh, put them on when you're out in public. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, is it's really looking promising. Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Fauci has alluded to that in some of his comments that he may be pushing for a recommendation that people out in public are wearing masks. And, and I think even if we don't get to that recommendation right away, it's a fine thing to start now. It doesn't cause any harm. If anything, the mask is going to keep you from touching your face. <laughs> there is that too. Absolutely. Uh, it does help you keep your nose and your mouth free from, from contamination. And that's a, that's a really good thing. And then that said, laundering the mask re- regularly becomes important or, or the mask eventually becomes just one of those contaminated things you're putting on your, your nose and your mouth. Yeah. Logan and I were talking to his daughter the other evening and they're in the Ukraine. They're missionaries in the Ukraine and they aren't allowed to step out of the house without a mask on. Mm-hmm. So you can't go in a store down there without a mask on. Well, let's just say, you know, in, in a lot of countries that have a little stronger control of their population, um, you know, essentially the entire province of Wuhan, and I'm not advocating this, but the entire province was put on house arrest. You mm-hmm. were only allowed out of your home if you had a written permit showing the police why you were allowed out of your home. If you were out of your home, you wore a mask. I've even heard stories of some communal living areas having the doors welded shut so that people couldn't just leave uh, with only one left open for safety. Um, So those measures are are pretty impressive and and pretty scary when we hear about them here in the U.S. But I will say, insofar as containing a virus, they make a difference. I mean, South Korea has really been quite impressive with what it's been able to do now. They're still seeing new cases every day, but they are seeing new cases slower slower than everyone whom we believe the data from. They yeah. probably shut theirs down at gunpoint. And it, it, there is a, a strong element of that, but again, <laughs> the um, they also have a, a populace that's used to taking orders. Yeah, right. And doing what the government says for fear of people knocking on their door at night. So uh, if we could get that same mindset without the fear, I think that would be fantastic. Well, Dr. Pruce, this has been very, very informative, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy getting this information. Um, I would suggest if people have any questions about the coronavirus or COVID-19, go to cdc.gov at cdc.gov. Uh, there's a, that's a good resource. And then, um, if people want to sign up to get any news or updates from the Indiana state department of health, they can go to coronavirus.in.gov. I think they update theirs every day at 10 AM. Also the Johns Hopkins website's really good. Yes. Johns Hopkins is really good. I would agree. 
Any last and thoughts? Would, final see, thoughts? Yeah, I would just say the the one big thing is is don't worry about knowing just what you're required to do. Think what all you can do. I think that's probably our best uh, way to beat this is if people are going above and beyond what their local authorities are requiring of them. Uh, protect your neighbors, protect your family, protect the people you don't even know yet. Uh, you're doing them a huge favor. And although you won't see the return on that investment uh, for weeks and weeks, uh, you have to do it now to get that return. I heard it said that it's best to act that you already have it. So you'll be Absolutely. more precautious. Absolutely. My wife and I just spent uh, the, the last hour washing all our groceries as they came in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's on the presumption that the good folks at the grocery store have done a good job of sanitizing everything. But you know what? You can't be too cautious right no, now. It's, it's a fine thing to do. Uh, you can you can look at Facebook for the 1200th time or you can wash your groceries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do what you can to keep yourself safe. Leave your shoes in the garage. Think about things like that where you're masked when you're in public. Don't make more trips than you absolutely have to make. Uh, keep in touch with people by phone and, and FaceTime and, and things like that. Uh, it's a hard thing to do for week after week after week, but really the less folks you come in contact with, the better off everybody is going to be. Well, we appreciate you taking time out of your schedule again. I know you burn the candle at both ends. We said that last time. I know how busy you are, and, and my heart goes out to all the doctors, nurses, Oh, pharmacists, man. even down to the EMT on the ambulance. I mean, first responders, they're all being exposed to this virus daily. So they do it willingly, help their Absolutely. fellow man. And Absolutely. I really appreciate what they're doing. Well, real happy to have the opportunity. I think uh, programs like this right now, public knowledge is just critically important. And uh, we can't expect people to know just what to do when really even the healthcare system is just getting its training wheels uh, for understanding what to do. So as often as we can uh, get information out to people that helps them modify their behaviors, their activities, and and keeps them aware and therefore less anxious, I think that's all good. Uh, So I really appreciate what you guys are doing with this program. Thank you. I I, I agree. I I don't think we've reached our peak yet. So we we may ask you to come on again and just give us another update and just we'll play it by ear. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Pruce. Thanks. Have a wonderful evening and stay safe. All right. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Just search for the Orange Mailbox and hit that subscribe button. Or go to our website at www.theorangemailbox.podbean.com and check out all of our episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any comments or show ideas, drop us an email at feedback at theorangemailbox.com. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, always go to the mailbox expecting.